Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Emmanuel Daniel, who's a global thought leader in the future of finance. He's got a long bio. He's an entrepreneur, writer, listed as a top 10 global influencer in the fintech power 50. His latest book you can see right behind him is The Great Transition, The Personalization of Finance is here. Welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, Mr. Daniel. How are you? Very happy to be on your show. I've listened to some of your podcasts. Um, well, there's a lot, a lot of ground to cover. Yeah, there's a lot of ground to cover in a short time. And I thought, you know, we spoke recently on my TNT show, uh, more economy, CBDCs, digital currency, and that sort of thing. And uh, I, I, I don't know if you did this just for me. You know, I, I had wanted to talk about geopolitics in China, and you're you're coming to us from Beijing, from uh, yeah, Beijing. I, I I divide my time between Beijing, Singapore, and New York. So, uh, and last year I was like seven months in New York and, uh, you know, and, and that was actually, by the way, uh, like the first time after the pandemic, right? So, so I was able to, uh, you know, take a dispassionate view of the U.S. Like, you know, I felt like I was a, um, a visitor looking from the outside, looking in rather than, you know, being a participant. Took me a few months to sort of settle in uh, and get get back, get used to life back in the U.S. But then I, I also spend a lot of time here in Beijing. So, so, you know, when you talk geopolitics, I'm so not a fan of geopolitics because I have, fan, I have friends in, in both sides uh, of the equation of, of the relationship. Uh, and I've seen, uh, I know these two countries from the ground up. So I'm the last person that you get saying that it's a we against them kind of a, a story. But having said that, I think that that relationship needs to be, um, you know, the, the, the narrative, the, the story needs to be restated more accurately. Uh, and, and that's what I spend more of my time thinking and doing. Uh, in fact, right now, like the conversation that we had the other day, if I were to um, you know, continue on uh, from finance to what geopolitics is, I would say that I am wrapping my mind around the idea of the dysfunctional state, um, you know, and the power of the dysfunctional state. Uh, and I think that that is what the U.S. is to itself and, and to the rest of the world. Um, when you take the history of the U.S. from, you know, from the independence, you know, 1776, um, it's always been dysfunctional. It's always had issues and, you know, it's always, there's, there's always been uh, a, a mismatch between it, the ideal of the United States uh, and the reality of the United States. Um, and it's always an imperfect country. Um, you know, that, that little girl that uh, recited that beautiful poem uh, during, um, you know, the presidential um, uh, inauguration, um, you know, two years ago, um, she said it uh, beautifully, she, you know, that uh, we're always a country in the making. Uh, so when, when George Floyd happened, um, you know, what is now, what, three, four years ago, uh, and the video reached me, I think, easily within four or five hours of it happening, right? I mean, I was I, I watched it on my on my WhatsApp. Someone had uh, viraled it, and I kept looking at it. And I said, you know, wow, um, they finally captured it on video, uh, you know. And um, and then I I was one person who was not uh, perturbed by it as uh, as um, you know as a one off event. Uh, because this has been the story of the U.S. all along, um, you know, and it's just that, um, and 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 it was the same story when Martin Luther King was killed, and all the streets went out on a rampage, all the cities went out on a rampage, um, you know, there was upheaval, this and and so on in 1967, 68, uh, well into 69. But by the time we reached 1970, the, the agenda had changed somewhat. Um, you know, it became the hippie movement. It became Vietnam War. It became, um, you know, uh, gay rights, uh, stuff like that. And, and, and the, um, you know, Black Lives Matter type of uh, issue was postponed for another 20 years before, before, the, before they were able to deal with it. And this time, more graphically, because, you know, the, the audiovisual, um, you know, brought it home to, uh, you know, people at home. Um, now, then when I spend time in countries like China um, or even Singapore, where I come from, 
which are far more organized and far more, um, you know, coherent uh, as a story. Um, you know, we are all beneficiaries of the dysfunctionality of the U.S. Uh, you know, just about every country in the world shares the the, the same uh, vision that the that the American Constitution um, you know promotes, which is the liberty and and the rights of the individual, um, you know, and the ability to um, to free association and all that. We I think the whole world subscribes to that. Um, it's just that um, the U.S. lives through the. The um, you know the uh, the the you know the the, the discontinuity and the and the mismatch, uh, whereas the rest of us are able to pick up on what we like and we pick and choose and and then we make uh, more perfect societies as a result, um, and that works for a while until we have the same problems the U.S. does eventually. You know, so that's how I describe uh, what I think I see uh, happening in the U.S. And then when I'm in China. Um, um, you know the what China has achieved in the last thirty years or forty years um, is amazing. I think that anyone who wants to criticize China uh, should start by recognizing what it actually has achieved. Um, you know, and and when you come here and you spend time and you you know you travel through the country and you're on high speed trains that go at three hundred fifty kilometers an hour, you know, zipping across this amazing country, um, you know, you you just you you just um, you know it's breathtaking what they've achieved in the thirty years, um, but we need to contextualize it um, to. Uh, what was it that made it possible for China to make this transition? Because there's a lot to learn for um, any developing country in the world. There are many developing countries in the world that wish that they could have had the success that China has had. Uh, but telling the story in the context of 5,000 years of uh, you know, civilization and all that, I think that's like that's rubbish. Uh, you know, uh, China had one very important episode of 10 years, which is the Cultural Revolution. Which they basically did a you know mental reset, um, um, you know a total uh, re reset of the, the the psyche of being Chinese. If you were in China, you'd see how modern it is, and then you go over to Taiwan, or even to Hong Kong, or even to a village, a Chinese village in Malaysia, uh, and you'll see how traditional they are. You know, they still have ancestral worship. Um, they, they are, their families are still, um, you know, organized around clans and so on. China wiped that out, um, you know, in that 10-year period. Um, you know, and then when you say, why can't India be like China? Um, you're asking India to have a cultural revolution like China did. And no other country in the world uh, will want to pay the price that China paid, uh, you know, in that 10 years uh, of incredible upheaval, stories of, you know, children throwing their parents into, into prison for disagreeing with them intellectually, um, of the writer of the Chinese national anthem today, he would die in prison, uh, you know, during the Cultural Revolution, and, and, and so on and on and on, the, the number of people uh, who paid a price, um, you know, for uh, for for protecting what they thought uh, was tradition and, and values in the country. You know, so, um, so you, you put that into the equation and you say, okay, uh, now we see why, um, you know, no other country in the world um, can have the, the, the kind of progress that China has had. A quick shout out to our sponsors, which you can locate via the sponsor page on geopoliticsandempire.com or whose links are included in every podcast description. I've tried privacy phones in the past, such as Silent Circle's Black Phone, which turned out to be a dud. The best and really only option so far is de-googling your phone. Now, you can do it yourself, but I've never had the time to figure that out and simply got an above phone. They sell de-googled phones that come with a suite of software. They also provide support and a monthly above privacy suite with many features such as a unique phone number, encryption, email, VPN, and so forth. If you're looking for a private phone, check out above phone. Make sure to click on the above phone link on geopoliticsandempire.com or via the podcast description so that we can enjoy a commission. Also, check out the Nomos Time Bank at nomos.net, which you can download in Spanish or English to your Apple or Google or de-Googled phone. 
Nomos allows people in your community to exchange services using time as a currency rather than fiat money. This will be one great way to survive in the coming algorithm ghetto. If you need health insurance, you can talk to my friend James Guzman of the Borderless Blog Podcast and Health Insurance. He offers free consultations. Simply schedule a time with him over at borderlesshealthinsurance.com. Finally, you can donate directly to Geopolitics and Empire Consult with me, the host, or become a member to join private monthly member Zoom calls where we shoot the breeze discussing world events. Now, the other thing is this, that uh, one of the things I just have made it a point in my life is to travel. Uh, and I've done about 110, I've done 110 countries. I have it on my app. Uh, you know, I've got 85 more to go. Um, you know, and I and I know people have done far more than I have. So you know, um, and I'm not in a hurry to do the rest. Um, I just take uh, countries and regions uh, step by step, uh, and 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 then I absorb them. And something I I've I've learned is this very interesting. I went to Rwanda, you know, and this is a country that um, has um, has had a genocide only. In in you know within memory um, you know it is 1994, uh, two hundred thousand people uh, killed um, you know uh, sorry eight hundred thousand people killed two hundred fifty thousand of them uh, buried uh, in the mon in the mausoleum or the monument um, you know in downtown um, Kigali Kigali, right um, and today uh, from the airport to the hotel the streets are tree uh, tree lined. Um, you know, and and uh, there there are speed cameras. Uh, a zebra. My my one test of a civilized society is zebra crossings. You know, like like the you know street crossing. And if you stand at the zebra crossings, the cars actually stop. You know, and you know they don't just zip past you like in many many developing countries. So, and the zebra crossings work. And um, you know, and 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 people are highly civilized. I sat down with us. CEO of the largest bank in the country, and and so on, and you and you see what was what is it that made this country able to make incredible progress? In fact, they call Rwanda the Singapore of Africa now, or the Switzerland of Africa, because the CEO of the the largest bank, uh, she spent time in Switzerland and then she came back to to serve the country. And then I I, I look at other countries that have had similar types of history. Uh, Ghana is another one, and then I. I then think about China and I say, um, how is it that, you know, why is it that these countries uh, can have such a dark past and, and make the transitions that they do? Uh, and I came up with this phrase, um, because they have seen the alternative. In fact, it was someone in Ghana who said to me that, you know, um, despite all the economic problems that Ghana is going through right now, uh, it, the transition of power is very stable. Um, you know, it's a very um, respectable country today. Um, and when I asked someone, you know, how is it that you've got such a stable political system? Um, the answer I got was because they've seen the alternative. And the alternative was, you know, a, a time in the past when the president took brought in all the opposition members to, to the palace and shot them dead in front of live television, you know. So, so the thing is that... Um, and and I, I can keep going, like Indonesia, for example, is the most um, functional democracy in the world today. Nobody talks about it because um, everything works. Uh, the presidents just come and go one after the other. They have the one of the best presidents they ever had right now, Widoyo, um, uh, Joko Widoyo, and and... Uh, and his term is coming to an end and, and he's done an incredible job and then he will be stepping down and there will be an election and holding together the democracy uh, is amazing. Uh, and then you ask, oh, how did in Indonesia make this transition to a functioning democracy today? Uh, again, it's because they've seen the alternative, uh, which was during the 1997 uh, economic Asian financial crisis where Suharto had to step down and, and so on. And, and then the turmoil that they went through, uh, you know, to, to build the structures of uh, functioning democracy. You know, so, um, so the, um, the, the, juxtapose, the, the juxtaposing the stories of these uh, functioning democracies and, and functioning economies against the, the American story uh, is that America is always an imperfect society. 
um, you know, and because it's an imperfect society, it can absorb uh, a lot of the innovations that are transforming entire civilizations today. Um, and if you ask me the one thing that's different between the US and China, or there are two things that are very uh, that 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 underpins the fundamental difference between the United States and China. And one is information, the ability to deal with information, uh, and the other is capital. Um, you know, in fact, a lot of the developments in China in the private sector was American capital. Uh, the ability of Chinese, um, you know, private sector uh, startups like Alibaba and Tencent and and, and a whole list of them uh, being able to uh, raise capital in the U.S. Um, you know, and uh, the the thing about information is that. Uh, today we've got an uh, we've got technology has made it possible that there's incredible symmetry of information between um, buyer and seller, uh, regulator and buyer and seller, uh, buyer and seller and unions and community. Um, you know, and the information that you have, I have, uh, and and everybody else has. Um, on the one hand, it helps um, price discovery, for example, uh, very well. But on the other hand, uh, it creates um, opportunity for discontent uh, like you wouldn't believe. Uh, and on top of that, you've got platforms uh, like Twitter and and you know and and what we're going to be on like YouTube and so on, um, which um, you know which uh, accentuates um, the echo chamber, which is you know people who uh, share an opinion all. Um, you know, coagulate together and, and they sound louder than they, they really are uh, and they are able to cause uh, social disheval. Uh, you know, so, and, and, and the U.S. is living through that. Uh, all other countries um, try to control that as far as they can. And of course, it's the most control in China. So China looks like uh, it's able to handle the transition into an information uh, and network world well, uh, but it eventually will have the troubles that the U.S. has today, uh, you know. And on top of that, uh, in the U.S., you have this um, this challenge of large, big businesses being able to, um, you know, commoditize everybody uh, through the use of platforms. Uh, and then, as a result, you know, it, it uh, causes disheavals uh, in local communities, um, you know, uh, and 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 uh, and society as a whole. Um, you know, and the, the role of big business uh, in the information era. Now, I think that the U.S. will eventually uh, work its way through these uh, challenges. Uh, and at every, you know, period, there's there's usually a um, um, a plateau that it reaches where it looks like the better society. Um, you know, and right now it doesn't look like it. But <clears throat> I think that, um, you know, whatever the U.S. experiences, uh, the rest of the world will experience at some point in time. And, and that's right now in the information network um, element of it, uh, and also in the area of capital. And, and in the area of capital, um, I have a whole set of theories about, um, you know, the, the fact that capital itself is being invested in increasingly more ephemeral, um, you know, assets which don't have an underlining value to it or an underlining business to it. Uh, and that in itself is another journey that the U.S. is leading the rest of us. You know, so so I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't um, um, call it, uh, you know, a, a sunset, uh, you know, civilization in, by by any any stretch of the imagination. Uh, it is pushing ahead uh, and it, it is paying a price uh, as it pushes ahead to into the network world. So you, you you seem to be bullish then on on the U.S. Uh, empire. I I, I kind of wanted to play on this theme. There's a lot of talk now about you know the world is bifurcating. You know, unipolar world to a bipolar or multipolar world, East versus West. Uh, you know, um, what is it? The uh, Washington, London, and and Brussels versus you, you know Eurasia. A little bit of Mackinder in there, and and you know the the, the world island, and you know there's new Cold War 2.0. There's talk about uh, the, the West is getting kind of hawkish regarding China and and Taiwan, so there's a lot of this talk, you know, uh, Graham Mallison and and, and the the Thucydides <coughs> trap. And so, um, where do you see us going? You know, is there this potential for uh, a military conflict, or is it going to be played out uh, economically? And and you you seem to view the U.S. as still strong which i i i'm tending to think that, that, that that's the case and then how strong is is is, is china uh, going forward so you know any further thoughts on on this sort of east versus west 
this idea of East versus West, the idea of we against them, the Thucydides trap, that's a Western construct. Um, one of the nicest thing of being Asian is that I don't need to subscribe to that. Um, you know, and um, what I see happening, in fact, Farid Zakaria wrote uh, The Rise of the Rest, right? Uh, which is, uh, yes, uh, the US is the most advanced um, in our country in terms of technology and stuff, but the rest have risen up too, you know, and you, you just need to step out of the US, you know, come to a place like Singapore uh, or Japan, you know, for, for, for a time and you will see how much more organized and how much more valuable everyday life is as a, you know, because they, they're functional societies. Um, so the rest have caught up. And that's a, that in itself is an idea that many Americans just have to let it sink in, um, you know, that, that we are not, um, you know, not we on the plateau, where we on a, on a, on a perch and, and everybody else is on the plateau below. No, it's um, um, the, um, the, the, the abilities of different countries, whether it's Germany or China, um, you know, or, you know, there are, you know, Korea um, uh, has, has caught up. So um, it's a multipolar world. Um, and right now, even as we speak, um, because of the U.S. hegemony on, on finance, um, all of the other players, you know, Saudi Arabia um, and uh, the entire Arab bloc for, uh, for oil, uh, they're trying to find alternative uh, relationships uh, to uh, to one which is dominated by the U.S. And they will continue looking for those alternatives. Not all those alternatives will work. They also have conflicts of their own. Um, you know, the, like China just did a deal with um, Saudi Arabia to, to be able to buy oil in renminbi. And... Uh, the, the the substance of that deal is the renminbi never leaves China, uh, and uh, you know it, the, in other words the the, the Saudis have to um, have leave the renminbi to to be domiciled in China, and the only reason it works is because the Chi the Saudis also need to buy things from China, so they they have an account to pay into, uh, and uh, China is allowing foreign banks to have full access to renminbi accounts in China, so so the money never leaves uh, the country. Um, and uh, the Saudi eco economy and any oil economy is is uh, is uh, predicated in in dollars. So so they will need dollars anyway because they need to pay for other things uh, around the world. So when you when you go into the mechanics of um, of any of the alternatives that are being developed, each of them have a, a problem of their own. Um, you know. So now and then when when. The U.S. Uh, Anthony Blinken goes around the world trying to make relationships with the rest of the world. Um, Twenty years ago, the U.S. had something to offer, which is uh, you know the multinational companies which large with large capital. So they'd go to Singapore and say Hewlett Packard wants to put in ten billion dollars worth of um, you know manufacturing capability into Singapore. That makes a huge difference for a country like Singapore. Um, and uh, and it you know it it aligns the the relationship to be very pro-American. Today you go to Singapore. Uh, Singapore's largest trading partner is China, uh, and so is two thirds of the world today. Uh, you go to Brazil, the largest trading partner is China. You go to South Africa, the largest trading partner is China. Uh, you know you go to uh, Saudi Arabia, the largest trading partner is China. You know so. Um, uh, the U.S. is is discovering that everywhere it goes, uh, there's a new equation that they need to deal with, um, and uh, and so the 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 negotiations change. And on top of that, uh, the U.S. has lost its manufacturing capability uh, and and its uh, ability to build infrastructure. So when it goes to Africa, it has nothing to offer uh, by way of being able to build roads and so on. You know, you can talk down the. You can talk down the the road, uh, the Belt and Road program that China has um, sort of constructed over, and and I know the history of the Belt and Road program from like thirty years ago, before it was called the Belt and Road program, and it had nothing to do with government or the Communist Party. Uh, you know, it had it had to, everything to do with ordinary Chinese uh, going out because uh, life was really very hard in China. You know, but but uh, these uh, entrepreneurs have gone out and they've built incredibly functional communities, Chinese communities, 
in Ghana, I, there are like the, the 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 Chinese Chamber of Commerce in in Ghana is ten thousand members strong, uh, you know, and that's just the members. So you you know, there's a lively um, you know Chinese community that comes with its own capital to be able to make a difference uh, in these in these countries. So the uh, so when you say to uh, to society's trap and and so on, um, you you're trying to frame it. Uh, in a we against them um, model when the numbers point out uh, to a very different reality, which is um, that firstly, trade has become uh, the most important uh, determinant of, rela- of, uh, of geopolitical relationships today. Uh, and as long as China is able to keep its uh, manufacturing capability, the, the lowest uh, manufacturing um, you know, hub in the world, uh, it will be able to export uh, that capability to the rest of the world. It already has done that. Uh, you know, no country, even Mexico, um, you know, Mexico's biggest trading partner is the US and Canada and then China. So even as close as the US, um, it, you would find that uh, China is an equation that they need to, to deal with. Um, you know, so uh, as, now China's problem is to keep its manufacturing costs low enough for a longer period of time, so that it can hold on to that um, uh, to that to that part of the equation, the equation that it brings into the into the geopolitical uh, sphere, um, and uh, it's losing that equation slowly because uh, manufacturing is now being fragmented. Um, you know, even countries like Bangladesh, which used to be a basket case, I think that you know one of the former Secretary of States called it a basket economy, um, today has a per capita GDP that's higher than India. You know, um, and they've built their own social infrastructure uh, to be able to raise capital, uh, to bring out the energy of women in the workforce, uh, and, uh, and, and then also the, the textile industry, they've, uh, they've brought more of the downstream activities back into Bangladesh. So they, they're not just um, picking cotton, they're also you know, making finished goods uh, and, and they, they become more functional as a result. Now, that is more of a competitor to China than you know, any of the rhetoric between uh, you know, the US and China. Um, and so when you put all of that into, into the equation, uh, when the U.S. goes out uh, to assert influence, uh, it has to ask itself first, uh, what is the influence that, the, that we want to assert around the world? Um, and the only influence left is military, um, you know, and, uh, you know, the ability to um, quickly resolve conflict. Uh, but it's an influence that it, it asserts at great cost to itself. Um, you know, when I'm in the U.S. and I see roads not being repaired, uh, schools having funding problems, libraries being closed down, and then I think about the fact that this country spent nine trillion dollars blowing the hell out of um, you know of Afghanistan and, and Iraq over a twenty-year period. Uh, that money could have easily gone into solving a lot of the problems. And in fact, even the uh, you know Bernie Sanders um, you know debate on on social security. $40 billion, for goodness sakes. I mean, you know, you, you have the money to, to deal with it. Uh, it's just that the money is being used for something else. Um, so, so the U.S. Uh, asserts global influence at great cost to itself. Um, you know, and, uh, and, and, and that's where the narrative should be, uh, you know, and do we want to continue doing that? Uh, what should we be investing in? Uh, we are effectively a dysfunctional society. It's no fun being wealthy in the U.S. because the moment you step on the street, you you, you face the homeless. You you run the risk of being robbed. Um, you know the the, the the civil society is is not as 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 well developed as as it used to be. Um, you know, so so when when I put all of these into the equation, uh, I think that the conversation has to be something totally different. Um, it's a Western construct that it's always uh, a we against them type of a mindset. Uh, very often, it's we against we, uh, you know, we against me, uh, you know, that that, that kind of uh, a construct. Um, and why I say all this is because um, in Singapore, for example, uh, we are actually made up of different races. Uh, you know, a lot of people think that Singapore is. Chinese, but seventy percent of the population is Chinese. But you know, ten percent is uh, Indian, and 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 fourteen percent is Malay, and then there are a whole range of other 
races. So if you talk about multiculturalism, um, um, you know, we've had it longer than the U.S., uh, you know, and, and, uh, and a lot of the rest of the world has been multicultural for a long time. Uh, and that's something that we need to respect uh, and, and, and even draw from. Um, and the interesting thing is that Lee Kuan Yew, when he was alive, um, he insisted that every community have a self-help program uh, to to raise its own standards and deal with its own problems, um, you know. So, so the Indian community, which tended to be made up of either professionals at a high level or or you know um, people who whose uh, ancestry is uh, indentured laborers who are at the lowest rung of society, um, you know, they were uh, they were told to have their own you know teachers helping their uh, kids, their own entrepreneurs um, funding. Uh, you know, uh, poverty eradication programs and so on, um, and and then the Chinese and the Malays and so on. So the the idea that uh, you help yourself uh, is a very highly developed um, idea in Asian communities, uh, and so I carry that with me uh, when I look at uh, problems that um, you know different countries uh, face. Uh, and in the U.S. Uh, today, everyone just looks at the state and saying, you know, the state should help me solve this problem. Um, you know, and and I think that um, and the U.S. didn't used to be that way. And I think that, um, you know, some of these mindset issues need to be, um, you know, reconstructed if you're going to solve some of these problems. But having said that, um, technology is driving us, um, um, you know, well into the future. Uh, and and uh, it's setting the agenda for us and we need to, you know, cope and keep up with it. Yeah. And then uh, again, to look at. Uh extrapolate a, a bit get your thoughts you know, talking about china and then in your book you touch on the next financial crisis mentioning and how it will be more asset light than uh previous ones and then of course what's going on in uh, ukraine some people are saying uh you know the war in ukraine uh can be a catalyst for uh many other things that it's that it's wiping out the middle class. it's impoverishing europe uh, as a result of you know sanctions that are backfiring and inflation and and, and, and things like this and so uh, just your thoughts i guess on, on any future financial crisis and then how how, how will ukraine change anything uh going uh forward in, in in your mind one of the things i i think about war whether it's ukraine or even world war ii the the germans in inventing the, the the v1 and v2 rockets and so on is how how war speeds up technology development like you wouldn't believe uh, and then the ability of um, you know the, um, the the industrial the um, defense industrial complex to 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 innovate is just uh, amazing every time i see uh, you know I, they call it drone shows right in in guangzhou in china they they they've perfected the art of having a thousand or a, you know five thousand drones up in the air at night with lights on them, and then they all program to be synchronized, and it's so beautiful. Uh, that technology comes from war, uh, you know, and and uh, you know, so so we're going to see lots of new technology, um, no new innovations, um, you know, from the Ukraine war for sure. Um, you know, the the. Uh, the, the, the quality of uh, the economy in the next 10 to 20 years, and I say this in my, in my book, in the last chapter, in fact, writing the book was very interesting because I started with, my, my origins are in the banking industry. So I started by uh, trying to extrapolate where banking is going. And then halfway through the book, I was already talking about finance. And towards the end of the book, I was talking about entire civilizations because if if um, uh, finance is going to become increasingly personalized, it's going to have an incredible impact on how society itself is organized. Um, and I say this in the book, which is that the U.S. Uh, economy, it's not inconceivable uh, that it can grow from uh, the 21 trillion that it is today, uh, GDP, to 45 trillion. And I've now, you know, watched several uh um you know economists saying this now in fact only yesterday i was uh, i heard that there's a chance that um uh that the us might be issuing uh you know 1000 year bonds treasury bonds uh it's it's not uh it's not inconceivable that the us is will be capable of doing it and that brings us back to the power of the dysfunctional state um 
And the, the, the National Statistics Department in the US has already started tweaking the, 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 the notion of GDP uh, to not just be uh, manufactured goods, but also uh, soft assets like software, like services, uh, and so on. Uh, and when you see um, the creation of digital assets, you know, cryptocurrencies and so on, uh, you realize that they are not um, they are not based on any underlining business, uh, any underlining value, um, and the economy is just going to trudge on in that direction, um, you know, and it trudges on in that direction because uh, the only solution uh, to the inability to meet um, debt commitments is to create more debt um, and export it globally uh, so that the rest of the world uh, will absorb uh, and be invested in the US. And the reason the treasury bonds uh, have had a long run uh, of uh, trust in the rest of the world is because the rest of the world trusted the US. Um, we are right now at a point where uh, many countries around the world, even US allies, Switzerland, Israel, uh, are defunding their treasury, um, you know, hold, holdings, uh, and, and, uh, rewriting their, the, 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 the central bank balance sheets not to hold treasury bonds. Uh, and the US has to react, uh, to keep treasury bonds, um, um, interested in, I mean, or rather keep the rest of the world interested in, in investing in US debt. Um, you know, so it's a dysfunctional country that out of one act of desperation to the next, uh, exports, um, you know, its, its debt, uh, and its capital, uh, to the rest of the world to be invested in. And, and why do I say this with confidence? Because that's exactly what the U.S. did in 1971, uh, when for the previous 20 years, the entire discussion was how to hold um, the value of the dollar against uh, the price of gold, uh, and you know, in one you know fall day in 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 uh, in 1971, President Nixon just went on television on a Sunday night and said to, said to the rest of the world, "You know what? We are not going to hold it against the price of gold. We're going to let our our currency float, um, you know, on a trade weighted basis with the rest of the world." Uh, and guess what happened? The rest of the world had to follow. Uh, you know, uh, many countries um, then had to, uh, you know, float their currencies to, uh, you know, to find their value on a trade-weighted basis because uh, holding it against the price of gold was becoming in untenable and was most untenable to the U.S. So uh, when you look at every major decision that the U.S. has made, uh, it's always been uh, at critical points, um, you know, out of uh, a no-choice situation, uh, you know, out of desperation, uh, you know, entering entering World War II, um, you know, no war, no war, no war, then Pearl Harbor, and then the U.S. becomes the major uh, player. So I every time I see a debate, right now there's a debate as to how to regulate um, cryptocurrencies in the U.S., and the SEC has a, has a, um, has a mindset, and then, the, you know, the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, who has a central bank mindset, um, you know, putting her, her, her weight behind it. Uh, so the, the, those discussions will continue. And, uh, and then the decision that the U.S. finally makes, it, it always ends up making it out of desperation. Uh, and the desperation will come uh, when the U.S. needs a new trick uh, to keep itself uh, investable, um, you know, as an asset. Um, and, and then I also say this, that the banking industry went through exactly that same uh, transition. Uh, you know, bankers have books like, you know, this time it's different, but no, it's not different. We are looking at the same things, but we're not looking at the same things because when you look at a bank's balance sheet in 1971, at the start of uh, the end of the Bretton Woods era, and then 1984, 1987, 1992, 1996, 2008, uh, and then today, the balance sheet has become increasingly ephemeral. In 1971, the balance sheet of an average American bank or any bank around the world was, uh, uh, was you know, was um, deposits and, and um, real money, deposits and, and loans. Uh, 1984, the American uh, balance sheet, bank balance sheet had changed into mortgages, uh, but mortgages were hard assets of actual properties. Uh, by 1987, it was securities. Uh, by 1992, 
uh, it was uh, the beginning of um, you know uh, derivatives of mortgages. In other words, the banks were learning how to package their mortgages and sell it off so that their their capital costs would be lower. Uh, and like that, uh, by the time you reached the 2008 crisis, um, it was derivatives of derivatives. It was you know futures and so on, uh, which which the which the Wall Street banks were trading on. So the balance sheet has changed. So what I'm saying is that the next financial crisis will be on an increasingly ephemeral asset base that is not based on any underlining asset. And that actually sets the stage for the digital economy that we are, we are walking into right now. Uh, you know, and um, the U.S. is the best place uh, economy to take us there. So when the U.S. economy becomes $45 trillion and and therefore the rest of the world still um, you know, depends on it as for, for as an engine for growth. Uh, a lot of it is on ephemeral assets, um, you know. And and then I also talk about the fact that um, companies has uh, as as engineering intensive as GE are uh, talking about the fact that the data in GE is more valuable than the actual manufacturing business, and so on and so on and so on. So so I think I I see the <clears throat> I see the direction where we're going. Um, then the question is, how do you manage uh, an ephemeral um, economy, uh, an economy that is not um, based on any underlining asset, um, you know, and, and the disciplines that, I, that are involved? And the U.S., honestly, is, is in a position to answer this question more than any other economy in the world because of the freedom of uh, information uh, and, and the fact that it, it is the, the first victim of the future. You know, it's it's the economy that is, uh, you know, facing uh, some of these realities um, uh, up up ahead. Uh, you know, to the rest of the the rest of the world. You're one of the fir first uh, persons that sort of um, explained wh where we're going uh, in, in such a unique unique way. So, if I get it right, it seems like, as you say, we are going into this cbdc digital currency metaverse world the u.s is kind of leading us there and and china it seems like so they're going to pull off another 1971 uh to sort of push us into this space is, is that kind of how it's going to look like that's that's what the u.s is going to do uh you know they're going to pull up <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it they're going to pull off another 1971 and another 1938 and another 19 or uh, uh, 1911 you know so um it, the U.S. has been doing this all, all through its history. Um, you know, it's one act of desperation after the other. The War of Independence was was funded by with debt, uh, which then, you know, uh, eventually by the early 20th century uh, resulted in the the concept of uh, a central banking, which is the bank to as a as the, the bank that lends to all other banks. So. Um, you know, it's it's uh, there's there's nothing new in this story. It's a pattern that that the U.S. has been building on. The only thing that has changed is that the other countries in the world are in a position to match that uh, or to vary that that uh, that journey. Um, and when I think of the U.S. in this way, um, I also then look back at history and say, you know, which other civilizations had this problem? Uh, or this um, this kind of a scenario, uh, it was really the Roman Empire, uh, you know, and and uh, the U.S. is about what two hundred fifty years old now, two hundred, um, you know, and the Roman Empire sort of trudged along for a thousand years, you know, uh, so it the U.S. is still a long way to go that way. Uh, but what happened in the process? Uh, the rise of the Ottoman Empire on the east, the rise of the Germanic. Um, you know, tribes in the north. Um, you know, the 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 rise of uh, the northern uh, the the northern African empires. Uh, you know, to try and challenge the the dominance of of the of the Roman Empire. But the Roman Empire was trouble every day. You know, it, it came to a point where they were seeing a new consul every year, almost. Uh, you know, and it, it looked really dysfunctional. Um, but the one thing that the Roman Empire did well was the ability to absorb. Uh, the learnings from the rest of the, um, you know, the, the the rest of the world, actually, you know, and it was able to be organized militarily to go out there and, and to hold the empire together, which, you know, are some of the elements that are parallel to where the U.S. is right now, you know, and so, um, you know, and, and when it when it when it finally 
disintegrated, the Roman Empire disintegrated, disintegrated uh, in a whimper, meaning that you know the 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 the, the you know the council couldn't pay his debt, and and uh, a German mercenary who used to live in Rome, um, you know, came in and and just took over, you know. So uh, and that's how the Roman Empire finally disintegrated. In other words, ten years before it disintegrated, everyone knew that uh, the end was near. But I don't think the end is anywhere near for the U.S. today. It's absolutely uh, fascinating. Something else you touch on in your book, and I've heard other people use this term, uh, you know, networked. Uh, states and so going forward given everything we've discussed you know we've got this concept of the westphalian nation state and now everything's changing you've got the eu which is a supranational um regional mechanism they're talking about replicating that in in latin america uh and so things are kind of changing and on top of that everything you're talking about you know the whole digital space and, and you know big tech and, and these companies are becoming much more powerful than nations and so what do you see as the future form of uh state and, and how, how does it uh change so my next book i tentatively called it uh the winning civilization but then uh as i'm writing it i'm actually changing my my thoughts and it might actually end up being um a, 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 you know a different title that captures the idea better now the big difference between china and the us right now is that china for example wants to uh, you know, build its own um, uh, domestic capability on the chip industry and, and a lot of technologies. It, it wants to make it local. It wants to be self-sufficient. Um, when you take any uh, U.S. Uh, technology, you take the chip, it was made in easily 10 to 12 countries. Uh, it's not a U.S. invention. It, uh, and I have friends in the chip uh, design uh, business um, they're talking from, you know, from uh, Silicon Valley to Japan to Korea to, you know, to Singapore to back to Europe in Belgium and then back to uh, Silicon Valley every day. They, they, that's how they make decisions. You take the um, 787 um, Dreamliner, it's made in 16 different countries. Um, you know, you take the iPhone, it's not even made in the U.S. and it's considered to be a U.S. product. So the U.S. has ace uh, the ability uh, to own the IP, uh, but not worry about where manufacturing takes place. Um, uh, and uh, when you take any US product, the iPhone being the best example, um, it doesn't have to be American to be American. Um, and yet the Chinese are so so hung up about um, being domestic, they, they get the equation totally wrong. Um, you know, and uh, and you know, new advances in technology. You need to practically um, draw from um, very specialized skills that are honed somewhere in the world. Uh, and so, for any country or any civilization to uh, to ace the game to become a dominant civilization in the future, uh, will need to figure out a way to create a network economy. Uh, that makes them, um, you know, able to draw from, you know, best practices from anywhere in the world. Um, the, the iPhone uh, glass, when Steve Jobs originally wanted to, um, uh, uh, you know, perfect it, uh, he uh, he put the phone into his pocket and it was and was being scratched by his keys. And he said, "No, we got to get a glass that is, um, um, you know, that that is uh, both light and unscratchable." And he found it in Japan. Uh, and, and that was six months before uh, the first iPhone was launched. So, so the ability to network and to, um, you know, and to draw from, um, you know, developments around the world uh, is a survival instinct of any uh, future um, dominant civilization. Um, and on top of that, um, it's not just the multinationals are supranational now. Uh, it's also the network effect. Is making individuals super, supranational. Uh, in other words, you and I uh, have friends around the world, uh, you know, and and we network and we get resources and we we have business. We we actually buy and sell uh, from people around the world. So the ability of the nation state uh, to hold um, an economy together is increasingly, um, you know, difficult to 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 hold out to. So. Um, um, so anyone thinking about the idea of nation states uh, have to think in terms of 
the network state. Uh, and what that network state is, it's almost like a state that sits on top of a state. Um, you know, so, so you'd be a strong economy if you're networked with the rest of the world. Uh, and then you need to think about what's, what's domestic, what's local, what, what's, uh, what's me that I need to preserve in that relationship, in that equation. Um, and I think that's what uh, nation states need to be thinking about. I'm thinking a lot about this because, um, you know, in Southeast Asia, we have uh, many nation states which are uh, subprime in, or uh, don't have the critical mass to become dominant players. Eventually, they're all, you know, vassal states of the U.S. or of China and so on. So, uh, you know, what can these countries do uh, to, you know, keep the economy going, create jobs um, and, um, you know, and, and hold together as a country? Uh, a lot of it has to do with um, giving the best form of education to your people, uh, not to be nationalistic, but to be globalist. Um, you know, oops, I've just said a word that has become a bad word today, globalist. Uh, you know, at least globally conscious, if, if not globally connected, uh, and then let them figure out what they want to do. So I think that um, um, this idea of nation state uh, is... A, uh, is a work in progress right now. Um, and I think that um, it's it's uh, countries and leaders who know how to uh, who know how to benefit uh, from a network world uh, who will be best able to hold their countries together. Now I say that uh, fully mindful that countries like India and China keep reminding the rest of the world that, you know, 200 years ago, these were the largest economies in the world uh, that they were that they were you know hamstrung by West you know by colonialism uh, that destroyed them and all that. I don't buy that story, um, you know. And in fact, uh, I think firstly, India could not have held together if the British didn't come and uh, stitch you know uh, uh, you know easily about 15 different kingdoms uh, together uh, and the sultanates and so on. Uh, and and then made a country out of that. Um, before that, it was basically you know fiefdoms um, you know located on the same um, peninsula almost. You know so um, and, and China had its own problems, which is by by the 1850s, uh, it had, the population had grown incredibly. That it had problems managing its own economy. Uh, you know and and yet it it. Uh, for, it changes the focus to what the West did to try and break up China and so on. Uh, China was disintegrating uh, by itself. Uh, and then when you think of what technology is doing to us today, uh, it is either increasing the value of the individual or decreasing or commoditizing the value of the individual, depending on what you put into the individual's brains. Um, you know, uh, it is no longer true that you need a large economy uh, to be functional. Um, in other words, it, um, having a large population may actually work against you because everything is being automated. So what do people do? Um, you know, and, um, and so you need to start thinking about, um, you know, robotics. Uh, um, you know, you need to take productivity to its extreme uh, and so on. Um, and, then, and then what do you do to, with your people? Uh, countries like China and India have to un answer this question. Uh, in fact, I think that China's population decline may well work in its favor uh, because by the time it's now 1.5 billion, apparently it's going to go down to as low as 850 million. Um, China has absorbed and has embraced uh, productivity wholeheartedly. Um, when I first came into this country, uh, I was uh, surprised. If you go into a railway station in India, you will see that the porter is so afraid of automation that he insists on carrying all your bags physically on his head and and you know and, and on his hands and everything because he wants to show that he's still relevant uh you know whereas in china uh they they embrace uh, productivity openly and then figured out something else for 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 the manual laborer to do uh, and they they're continuing doing that they you know they they they're not afraid of the fact that a job can be taken over by a machine. Uh, you go to the cinemas or the movies, uh, you buy it on the machine rather than in person. Um, and that um, that calls into question the productivity of the manual laborer and, and, um, 
and uh, village people who who are migrating into the cities. Uh, and and for now, uh, there's a lot of uh, delivery service and so on. And even that's going to be um, you know taken over by drones and stuff like that. So so uh, the countries that have that are that are brave enough to to deal with the productivity element that's coming on stream uh, will now need to figure out you know what do they do with the rest of the population. And I say that uh, everything depends on what you put into the head of the of the individual. If what you put into the head of the individual is uh, vote for my party because I'll give you a job, uh, then you are creating your own problem for the future. You know, so um, so that's how I assess. Uh, how different countries uh, are preparing for uh, the future, and um, and I think that this whole um, dynamics and this the 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 dysfunctionality of of um, uh, societies holding together is most pronounced in the U.S. right now, um, you know, and and we can go on talking about how difficult it is in the U.S. today, you know, to hold a job, um, inflation, and all of that. So, you know, uh, it's the countries that figure it out that that will take us on to the next level. Yeah, we've covered a lot. And I think you're one of my guests that seems the most positive, uh, optimistic going forward. Is there is there then, um, you know, any any other uh, issue you wanted to get across or any final thought uh, for us? Well, final thoughts is uh, that um, look at the numbers always. Uh, be dispassionate in uh, in assessing um, the the real challenges that we face, um, and that you know when you travel and so on, don't don't try to superimpose uh, your reality on on someone else, uh, and because uh, that person's reality or that country's reality. May well have an answer that you may not be, you know, looking at. So that's why sometimes I have the most surprising uh, findings in in the most difficult countries, you know, Rwanda, Bangladesh, um, you know, even down to uh, Burundi. I, you know, I I learned a few things there, and um, so um, you know, and then you piece it together and and try and make sense of uh, where we are going, um, you know, and then also, also of course. Uh, that uh, there are some hints from history, uh, the ability of uh, mankind to to organize themselves are sometimes based on very simple, um, you know, um, elements that we may not have even thought thought through. Um, the reason the Mongolians were able to control just about a third of the world's land surface uh, at one in in the twelve hundreds uh, was simply because they figured out a way to tame horses, um, you know, and and that made and and their their neighbors, even China, hadn't done that. So eventually, the rest of the world learned, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So so the the elements that will that will be there will be triggers that will change the future may well be much simpler than we realize. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Mongolia. I used to I lived in the Gobi for a year doing Peace Corps. Uh, and uh, I just read this week, Peter Turchin, who's a, a great uh, historian, uh, social scientist, just published, a, he, he posted a paper that was published, I think, exactly on what you're talking about, how they discovered thousands of years ago of how horses were developed uh, to be used uh, as, uh, you know, for cavalry, cavalry and, and that sort of thing. And so, all right, uh, again, we, we've covered a lot. I high, highly recommend uh, your book. All of your links will be in the description, but is there, a, you know, any project you want to mention or best place to find you on the internet? EmmanuelDaniel.com. And then uh, from there, I take I take the uh, visitor to everything else that I'm doing and I'm working on right now. And thank you for the privilege, uh, OJ. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com. And I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. 
Vimeo also terminated our pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.